Public.com's yearly report reveals retail investor participation has hit an all-time high, venture platform teams face job cuts, and a bidding battle has begun for bankrupt trucking company Yellow's real estate and equipment. I'm Jackson Fordyce, and this is Venture Daily. Retail investor participation has had an all-time high, at least according to Public, an investing platform who yesterday released their yearly retail investor report. The report provides insight into the investing trends of its millions of users. In 2020, during the pandemic, the retail investing community saw a new wave of investors. Over the following two years, over 30 million brokerage accounts were opened in the U.S. Not only do they make up a significant percentage of the total equities trading volume, which was 25% in 2021, but after years of participating in the market, retail investors have stuck around, seeing $1.5 billion of weekly inflows. To get more insight on Public's retail investor report, I spoke with its GM of investor relations, Katy Perry. My name is Katie Perry. I am the GM of Investor Relations at Public.com, which is a place where you can invest in stocks, treasuries, ETFs, cryptos, and alternative assets all in one place. Katie, the report shows that retail investors that joined the market in 2020 have stuck around and have contributed with record inflows in 2023. Why are we seeing such strong participation from retail investors amid so much discourse that the market is in bad shape? Yeah, I think uh, experience was a hell of a teacher for a lot of retail investors in the past couple of years, especially in the volatility. Um, but the net there was a net positive there. There was a lot of really great healthy habits and behaviors and also resilience that came of that. And so um, some of the data in the report really, really underscore that. Um, there was one uh, insight that found that uh, majority of retail investors, I think about 69%, are confident in their portfolio strategies, even though they have mixed views on what the economic kind of future looks like. Some are pessimistic, some are optimistic. So that indicates, you know, they're learning to adjust and adapt to the regular ups and downs of the market. Um, and while they're engaged in like the macro trends and they're interested in following those things, it's not necessarily pushing them to stop participating in the markets overall, which is really, really great to see. Interesting. Some of the most popular investing themes in H2 are AI, renewable energy, and dividend investing. What new themes in 2024 do you think retail investors will be interested in? Yeah, I love that part of the the survey because it kind of gets at uh, there's more than meets the eye with retail investors. Usually you hear a retail investor and two sentences later it says meme trader or something like that. Um, but when you see dividend investing next to AI, it's like, wait a minute, there's a little more to the story here. And one of the big things we're noticing is that as people still are interested in tracking quote unquote meme uh, companies or megatrends like AI and clean energy EV, they're also equally balancing out those things with index investing, dividend, and a lot of like fixed income. Um, we launched treasury bills on our platform earlier this year, and they're incredibly popular. And so what people are really doing is being more diversified as an investor, not just in terms of what's in their portfolio, but which strategies they're using and for what. With Kava's listing and ARM, Instacart, and Clavio's IPO filing, it looks like the IPO market is beginning to heat back up again. Do you expect a new wave of investors or even dormant investors to participate in the public markets if this is the case? Yeah, so I think it's going to be, you know, it'll heat up as it heats up. And we have uh, Nick Einhorn, who's awesome, gave us some insights there. He's at Renaissance Capital and they have the uh, IPO ETF. 
But what's really kind of what we're seeing is that there's way more diligence being applied to decisions now versus before. And the signals people are looking at are increasingly health of the business, growth potential. And so it's really going to take, uh, you know, strong S1, a strong story beyond just hype and buzz to attract retail investors. Um, And I think the other side of that too is, you know, you saw a lot of these companies go out, you know, when things were really great. And at that time, I think it was, things were going up and people felt confident going in there. And now across the board, they're really digging into to the financial metrics. And we see that in how our, plat- our users engage on the platform overall. Katie, last question. Is there a data point from the report that I haven't mentioned in my questions that you think is important for our listeners to hear more about? The one thing that really jumped at me was kind of when we unpacked and double-clicked into the ESG thing. Um, fascinating to watch this whole thing unfold. It's obviously become highly politicized. And what you see with that and what's similar with a lot of sort of political debates is that people seem to be disagreeing, but disagreeing about different things. And so not necessarily having you know, talking about the same thing. And we saw that in when we asked our our investors to define what they thought an ESG strategy meant versus a non-ESG. There was a lot of people that were kind of mixed across the two narratives. Um, a big chunk of people thought that it was completely um, downplaying financial results in favor of value-driven um, ideals. And then another portion felt that it was purely a play that was was prompted by the business case for a sustainable company that's that's able to kind of endure in the long term. And so what you see there is people seeing ESG as almost uh, primarily values-based and sacrificing financial returns or um, actually doubling down and believing that ESG is actually what's going to keep a lot of these companies um, going for into the into the future. And so I think there's an interesting branding challenge there if you're on the ESG side. And in general, I think this is going to continue to kind of be a big uh, debate among retail investors based on different perceptions of what it actually is. So I, I found that personally really interesting. That was Katie Perry, GM of Investor Relations for Public.com. Great talking to you, Katie. Exciting to have you on. Very excited to be here. Platform teams are the Swiss army knife of the venture capital world. Employees on platform teams work on but are not limited to marketing and comms, community building, PR, fund operations, and business development. They support the firm's portfolio companies and help steer them to success. And platform roles aren't new to ventures, they've been around for decades. They were not popularized, however, until 2009 when Andreessen Horowitz wanted to establish a new system of operations at the firm. A16Z adopted an agency-like style with in-house employees to assist in day-to-day tasks with portfolio companies. So why are we talking about platform jobs? Despite their importance to venture firms, platform teams have been on the chopping block across venture. Last month, Sequoia Capital cut seven members of its in-house recruiting and talent teams. As job cuts within venture have risen, platform roles have been some of the first to go. To discuss why this is, I spoke with Chris Taylor. I'm Chris Taylor. I'm Chief Growth Officer at Left Lane Capital. Chris, what would you say is the current state of platform teams within the VC community? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so there's been a lot of dynamic conversation around it, uh, both pros and cons published recently around the value of platform teams. Um, uh, there have been some that have downsized, obviously, some that are expanding. I'm, I'm in the fortunate position to be in a company that's uh, that's actually expanding its platform team. Um, having been on the operating side uh, of several different companies with, uh, with VC backers and each had their own, or many of them had their own platform teams, I think what, where things have gone wrong from my perspective was where the expectations weren't aligned between uh, the VC firm um, and the investors who are, who are kind of coordinating with, uh, with their companies. Um, and then how those, uh, the expectations that are set for what the platform team could do to, to help the company. Um, there have been cases where, um, you know, they were just under-resourced. And I think that's actually a big driver in a lot of cases of maybe platform teams not delivering uh, or being perceived to deliver the value uh, that they should be, is that um, you have to resource them enough to to give them the uh, the ability to succeed. And so I think that's a that's a one place where I think folks have missed. Um, and then there are also, you know, there are cases where just because you have a growth team doesn't mean you have a growth team that's right for every single company in your portfolio to, uh, to deliver the exact advice they need. And so I think, you know, balancing that out and what we've tried to do, um, and I think I've done well here at, at Left Lane, uh, uh, even prior to my joining, was building a really robust network of advisors um, and folks that we can rely on for help when there are things that, uh, uh, that are outside of either our bandwidth or our expertise. A recent study from the VC platform Global Community highlights that VC firms with platform teams saw an 11% increase in net IRR compared to firms with no platform team. If these numbers are accurate, why would it make sense to cut employees from platform teams rather than an investor? I think it's easy. It's an easy place to say that those kind of linkages to value are not as uh, as immediate necessarily. Uh, I think to as just saying, you know, as the investing professionals are, uh, very easy to tie uh, as your operating a VC firm to tie uh, results for uh, your portfolio of companies to who made the investments uh, a lot harder to say what was the benefit we got from uh, platform level support that uh, where you've got a few people and their time is divided across the, the whole the whole portfolio. So I think it's just it, it kind of comes down to uh, that and, you know, read that study thought it was very interesting and, and made a really great case. Uh, I think a lot of it just comes down to how measurable is it? Um, and then given given various challenges in the market, you know, having been in marketing for a long time, um, are the kinds of areas that uh, unless uh, unless you can't see a specific, draw a specific line to the returns generated, uh, they tend to be easy uh, easy places to, uh, to cut when, when that's needed. A lot of investors believe we've seen the end of the downturn and we'll see an uptick in deals and funding soon. What does this mean for platform teams? But we see roles that were previously let go open back up. I certainly think so. I think as as uh, as the VC markets exp- uh, kind of expand again, um, more investments being made, but also you know a lot of maturing uh, investments uh, out there where uh, you know people are looking for you know ongoing support, um, more and more challenges. Um, and it's certainly a very dynamic uh, environment right now from a marketing standpoint, from an economic standpoint. I think more help um, that uh, the VC firms can offer to their portfolio uh, companies is going to be in, in higher demand. And, and I would think something that, uh, that founders are going to be looking for. Chris, last question. Why are platform teams important to VC firms? You know, VC firms often go out and they, they do a really good job of identifying uh, 
companies with a high likelihood to uh, to succeed. I think the the job of the platform team, um, certainly my job in the growth world, um, is to make sure that those uh, that those do succeed. To, to lend any additional help we can uh, to making sure that the uh, that the, the companies are realizing their potential. Um, and so I think that's that's always an, an incredibly important part of uh, of the VC model, right? Um, making sure that. You can actually deliver on the promise that you make to the founders as you're uh, uh, as you're making the investments, and that the the investments turn out and, and really meet their full potential. That was Chris Taylor, Chief Growth Officer at Left Lane Capital. Thanks for taking the time, Chris. Thank you very much for having me, Jackson. I appreciate it. A bidding battle has begun for trucking company Yellow's freight terminal real estate across North America. Yellow filed for bankruptcy earlier this month and plans to sell all of its real estate and equipment to pay back creditors the $1.92 billion it owes. Old Dominion Freightline has agreed to buy Yellow's network of about 170 truck terminals for $1.5 billion, which is $200 million more than rival trucker Estes Express Lines offered. Both of those bids exceeded the number Yellow listed on its bankruptcy filing, signaling the high-value companies are placing on the freight terminal real estate. Although Old Dominion's bid makes it the front-runner of the auction, it is not the certain winner, as several other trucking and industrial real estate companies are expected to make bids. Yellow's lawyers told a bankruptcy court earlier this month that it expects to repay its creditors through the sale of its assets. Appraisals valued Yellow's real estate portfolio at $1.1 billion and valued its equipment, including nearly 12,000 trucks and 36,000 trailers, at $900 million. For more insight into the story and why the VC world is watching it closely, I spoke with Anshu Prasad. I'm Anshu Prasad, co-founder and CEO of Leaf Logistics. Leaf Logistics is a transportation planning and execution platform for shippers, carriers, and brokers. Anshu, Old Dominion Freightline last week agreed to buy Yellow's network of about 170 truck terminals for $1.5 billion. Why is real estate, especially the built-out, ready-to-operate facilities that Yellow is auctioning, so valuable to regional and national freight operators right now? In particular, in the less-than-truckload space, where... uh, Yellow Freight and ODFL and others have been operating, there's a lot of uh, requirement for real estate and hard assets to efficiently move freight around. So essentially what's happening there is there's a set of freight that needs to be picked up, let's say a pallet here, two pallets there, that needs to then be transported across the country and then dropped off two pallets in one place and another pallet somewhere else. To do that efficiently, you need a network of not just the trucks to be able to pick up and drop off those loads, but to build more efficient, longer haul truckloads uh, that go from a terminal to another terminal, as opposed to moving one pallet or two pallets around the country one at a time. The way that the industry, the LTL providers have done that is building out assets and putting them in a place where, uh, putting them in places where as the demand comes through, they can efficiently move whatever the volume of less than truckload demand there is around the country. That does have its constraints, right? That has, has its physical constraints. You need to kind of have those that infrastructure built out. So when those assets became available, um, you know, certainly to kind of build more dense and further reaching networks, um, you know, you can appreciate why the other competitors of Yellow are, are, are uh, interested in those assets. Yellow was seeking to repay its largest creditors with its total liabilities at $1.92 billion. Yellow's lawyers told bankruptcy court it expects to raise enough funds through selling assets to repay in full. Do you think Yellow's equipment will fetch its appraised value? That's a tough question to answer. Um, you know, certainly there's a, a whole host of assets, um, you know, some of the physical infrastructure we just talked about, but also the, uh, the trucks to drive things around um, and deliver product. Um, you know, yes, while there is a lot of demand, there's been a backlog uh, of uh, 
orders for certain types of equipment, uh, supply chains in in logistics and the sales in terms of the actual assets uh, being ready and, and delivered to the customers on time. That's been slowed down in in the pandemic too. So yes, there's while there's some demand, uh, I think the the balancing act is going to be. Um, you know, what is the condition of some of these assets and um, are they of the, the quality and, you know, have the, the long useful life left in them so that um, they fetch sort of top dollar. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. According to the Wall Street Journal, trucking specialists are saying that the sheer volume of equipment hitting the market at one time could also weaken values. Do you expect there will be much demand for Yellow's equipment, especially the older equipment? Yeah, I mean that's exactly what I was, I guess, thinking about in your in your last question. In in this particular market cycle, where freight rates are at a, a low uh, and maybe a historic low um, that you know many of us kind of remember decades ago uh, being the only other proxy, uh, sort of uh, you know s- similar to where we are right now in terms of uh, demand and, and then therefore the supply uh, and the, the low rate environment. Um, there are a lot of assets kind of hitting the market. And so exactly what that does, I mean, this is a, a market driven by supply and demand like every other market. Um, we certainly, um, it'll be interesting to see um, how that demand kind of holds up. You know, just a couple of years ago, we were talking about containers and um, trailers and the, the lack of availability and how that was, a, you know, constraint to supply and therefore costs were going up. We're, we're seeing the opposite now. Um, yes, I think some of that supply hitting the market at the same time is definitely going to depress uh, the prices that Yellow's assets can command in the market. Anshu, what interest do venture capital markets have in this news? I, mean, I think there are two things. One, this is obviously a noteworthy event uh, in just our economy broadly. Uh, a company as successful and long-tenured as Yellow had been um, going um, through what it's going through is, is, is definitely news and noteworthy. Uh, it does signal that there are... Um, you know, challenges that our industry, you know, fundamentally very fragmented, low margins, um, you know, can experience when there's sort of macro conditions and, and headwinds that it faces. I think the second is, uh, you know, the investment and the interest in building things out that are a le- lot less data intensive, a uh, lot less uh, asset intensive, but much more data intensive in their in sort of their, their fundamental way that they're designed. Um, we're certainly working on things like that at least looking at data as the the asset around which you can build new supply chain uh, operations, find efficiencies. Um, I think that's of interest to venture capitalists. Um, At the end of the day, transportation logistics continues to be such a big uh, fundamental part of our economy. Um, It's an absolute necessity that that we have the supply chains working and functioning better than they certainly did the last few years. And yet you do have these real-life constraints of, assets and sort of legacy companies that have to go through a transformation, very easy to say, very hard to do in real practice. So when there are these big disruptions, it's an opportunity, I think, in a lot of ways for venture capital and for all of us to to really think about and reimagine the way some of these industry segments can work. Data first, uh, you know, maybe before assets. That was Anshu Prasad, co-founder and CEO at Leaf Logistics. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Anshu. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for tuning in to Venture Daily. Today's show is produced by Josiah Simons and Jackson Fordyce. Our theme song was created by Benjamin Cook. If you liked today's episode, please give us an honest review wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see y'all tomorrow morning.